episode 51 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. What is going on, AV Nation, and welcome back to the Pilot to Pilot podcast. My name is Justin, and I am your host. Today is episode number 51, featuring Jason Miller. You guys might know Jason Miller as he is the creator of The Finer Points, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and an Instagram page. It's probably many other things that I don't know of as well, but he has so much great content that I can't even begin to say how excited I am to have Jason on the podcast. He is the OG podcast or aviation content creator, if you will. He was doing podcasts back in 2005 before it was cool to do podcasts. So shout out to Jason for putting in the work and creating and creating this pathway for everyone that has followed him like me and all the other podcasters out there. Aviation today, Jason and I talk about just why Jason became a pilot. We talk about what the inspiration was to become a pilot. We talk about how he's still not able to buy a flight simulator, not because he doesn't want to, but because he doesn't trust himself and he thinks that he would spend all day and all night flying flight simulator. Jason talks about how he got into aviation but didn't know where to start. When Jason started flying, it was in the 90s and there wasn't the internet. It wasn't as easy as Googling how to become a pilot. You had yellow pages, you had to drive to local FBOs and knock on doors and make phone calls. So it was a little bit different than it is now. So he talks about what it's like to break into the industry back in the 90s. Jason talks about how you can have a good career in aviation no matter what route you choose. How moving to California showed him that he can make a career out of instructing. Talk about why I didn't want to go into instructing. We talk about why Jason doesn't want to become an examiner, how Jason deals with rogue DPEs, and we talk about what the most important thing to focus on when you are becoming a new instructor. And he also gives three tips of what to do when you are a new instructor. Aviation, I really hope you enjoy today's episode. If you do enjoy the episode, please check out our website, pilottopilothq.com. You can email me feedback at pilottopilothq at gmail.com. Also, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pilot. Patreon is where we use money to further this podcast and make it the best that we possibly can. So please check us out there. I have stickers there, which I just got a new shipment of stickers. So if you're a $5 member, you will get a sticker. I'm also working on keychains as well. So go check that out, please. And let me know. Give me some good feedback. I love some good criticism, good constructive criticism to help fix this channel and make it the best podcast that it possibly can be. Aviation, I don't want to hold you any longer. So without any further ado, here's Jason Miller. Jason, thanks for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's uh, it's awesome to have another fellow podcaster, fellow creator on uh, the podcast. So I'm excited to see what you have to say. Yeah, man, I know the pain you're going through on your side. Checking <laughs> sure. levels and all that. <laughs> right, yeah, it's always fun, all fun. Um, yeah. So yeah, I love the fact that you said you're a professional flight instructor. That is kind of what you want to do and how you wanted to, to have your aviation career unfold. So talk to me a little bit. Well, let's start from the beginning and then we'll get into that. But talk to me a little bit about why Jason wanted to get into aviation. What was kind of the, the first reason why and how to start? Yeah, you know, I think um, I'm probably a lot like like, other pilots in that it was just a bug that bit me early. I remember moving uh, when I was young, we moved across town to a, to a house that was located on the final approach to DuPage airport in St. Charles, Illinois. And um, all of a sudden I just look up in the sky and I see all these Cessnas, you know, 152s, 172s, 210s, sometimes an occasional light twin uh, right, flying right over my house. I mean, the landing lights used to shine into my bedroom window, you know. Uh, and then one day, I literally just followed the airplanes 
through the forest across a cornfield, like, like out of some story, man. And I ended up at DuPage airport where I just started, you know, I just kept repeating that. I kept hanging out there on Saturdays and, and meeting people. And, you know, I don't know what it was, a fascination with, um, you know, shaking off the, the bonds of gravity, right? right. Just a fascination with flying and, yeah. and seeing the world from above. And, you know, this is like, I look around today's world with these YouTube videos on your phone and like flight sim and all that sort of stuff. So you have to remember, this is at a time when I think the Sublogic flight simulator, this was like in the 80s and the Sublogic flight simulator was the only thing out there. It was like a two-tone you know, little like, I mean, it was a ridiculous thing, but, <laughs> but I had it and I would sit there and fly real time from Chicago to New York. Oh my you know, gosh. Like, I know, man, my brother thought I was crazy. <laughs> That's <laughs> hilarious. Up, yeah. Like I was doing a real flight, you know, now I look at like the sim world and I actually can't buy those things because I think I would never leave my office. Oh, that's too funny. (laughs) I mean, I loved aviation. And I mean, I love aviation, but I don't think I would ever be able to sit and fly a real-time flight from Chicago to New York. (laughs) I know, right? It's kind of ridiculous. But you just, you know, back then there was nothing else and it was was just so cool. And I I, uh, mail-ordered textbooks. I remember I I went, I sent away for one from Ohio State University. Hey, go Bucks. What's that? That's yeah, it. Right. Go Buckeyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. And um, yeah, so, you know, I just, um, just really read anything I could, Flying Magazine, and I just, I had that bug. Funny though, I didn't really realize, I guess I never, I didn't come from an aviation family and I didn't expect that my parents would be supportive of me being a pilot. It was just totally off our radar, right? I mean, I was like the only one. And um, it wasn't until after college where I just kind of said to myself, you know, I think I'm going to do this. And I even expected pushback from from my family when I told my dad, this is what I'm going to do. Um, but I didn't get that, you know, so that's when I really dove in. When you said this is what you want to do, did you in your head, was it I want to be a professional pilot and fly for the airlines or was it that I want to be a CFI? First, it was the airlines. Um, so I, I figured I wanted to be an airline pilot. That's kind of the the beaten path, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know much about business aviation. I didn't. I didn't know much about anything. I remember feeling like the conversation I had with my dad was, "This is going to sound ridiculous now." But I said, <laughs> "I said, you know, I'm going to get into flight training, Dad. And if I crash and die doing this, I just want you to know this is something I've always wanted to do, and I've lived my life to the fullest." <laughs> And I gave him that whole speech and he's like, what are you talking about, man? Just go for it. (laughs) It's like, just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I didn't know where to start. I started at the bottom and worked my way up. I I went out and got a job at Priester Aviation driving the fuel truck, just doing line service and and taking lessons. And Priester had this little 152. This is now in the 90s. And they had this little 152 that they didn't use for training anymore, but they would rent it to employees for basically the price of gas. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I kind of did that. I trained on the weekends, worked at Priester. And when I got my certificate, I flew that one, that little 152 everywhere. You know? That's awesome. You know, you said that your family didn't have anything to do with aviation, really. What was it for someone that necessarily didn't know how to start the process? How did you start that process with literally not knowing anything about it? Did you just, I don't I mean, this is back in the nineties. Did you have to look at phone books? Did you just drive to the airport? I know there's no Google. You can't just Google how to become a pilot. So what did you do to become a pilot? Yeah, no, I think, I think I did what you said. I drove to the airport and the first place I went was out to DuPage, which was where I kind of, that's the one I hung out at when I was Mm -hmm. a kid. And, um, 
I remember I'm sitting there watching the planes land and this car pulls up and this dude's doing the same thing. He's just sitting there watching the airplanes <laughs> land and I get to talking to him. His name, I'll, I even remember his name. It was Chuck. And he said that he used to be a pilot for FedEx, but he doesn't fly anymore. And I started asking him, I'm like, God, what was that like? And, and he started telling me how he got into it. He actually pulled out a sectional on, threw it out on the, on the, the hood of his car and started showing me what all the numbers meant. And uh, I think he was probably the one that said, you should just go get a job at like, you know, one of these FBOs and yeah. just kind of get your foot in the door. So at that point I drove up to uh, Palwaukee cause it was closer to where I was living in Chicago. And um, it was, it's now a Chicago executive and Priester yeah. I think has been bought by signature. But um, at the time Priester aviation was there and I just went in and said, Hey, I want, I, I want a job. And um that's how that went, man. And it was pretty hardcore. I, you know, all of a sudden I was, you know, getting there. I had to started on first shift six in the morning, six to two. And I'm, I mean, I had to really just, I just dove into the world of aviation. And you, know, you were asking about uh, being an airline pilot. I think that that education working on the flight line there, um, really like informed what I ended up doing because I met a lot of, at the time it was executive jet, uh, uh -huh. not net jets, I think, but, um, at the I met a lot of exec jet pilots. I worked side by side with a lot of, uh, e old former Eastern airlines pilots that okay. were flying our fleet of Gulfstream ones at the time. Gulfstream and, um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> and, uh, we had a few of them. And so I, I got to talk to the charter pilots at Priester. I got to talk to all these exec, exec jet pilots. Um, and I just started hearing from them. Everybody had a different opinion. You know, some guys were like, go for it, man. You're going to love the airlines. Um, the former Eastern guys were like, don't do it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Right. You're going to yeah. get furloughed when you're 45. Oh man. You know, cause they had it pretty rough, but, uh, I still was pretty committed to being an airline pilot right up until the moment I got my private. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. It's really funny who you talk to based on what happened to them in the career is what kind of advice they're going to give. So if they were furloughed at 45, they'd be like, dude, don't go to the airlines, do whatever you have to do other than airlines. Then you talk to the corporate guy that could never get hired by the airlines. And he's like, Oh my gosh, just go to the airlines. It's the best career. But in all honesty, you can have a good career no matter where you go. You know, it doesn't matter corporate airlines, flight instructing, like you said, or any other avenue you want to go through. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, in life is so much like that. It's not, it's like, it's how you play what's dealt to you. You know, right. it's not right. I mean, it's how you look at things. And uh, one thing that I, I did notice was I just loved being at the airport. Mm -hmm. I, um, I was there on the weekends. I, I just, everything about even that ridiculous job at, at the FBO, like, I got to go out and do like break action reports on the runways in the morning, <laughs> you know, like drive the truck as fast as possible, slam on the brakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. We put this little accelerometer on the floor and that's awesome. Um, lots of fun stuff. We had to dig a citation out of the snow when it's oh, yeah. off the runway one time and yeah. you know, just, just all just being around it. It felt like, uh, I don't know, you probably don't know those old movies from the 70s, like Air <laughs> Airport 75 or whatever, but I felt like every day was like a scene from a movie, you know? That's funny. I'll have to check it out. I could lie to you and say yes, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, no, they're cheesy, man. I don't know, uh, <laughs> but they're fun. Oh, it's all good. It's funny hearing you talk about DuPage and Milwaukee because I fly to those airports quite often and then I kind of live in the between them too. So it's really interesting to hear you talking about what it was like back in the uh, 90s and 80s with the aviation with uh, the places that aren't there because I just see Signature and I see Atlanta now and all that kind yeah. of stuff but it's interesting yeah, yeah. we find it a page all the time with the jet so if you're you would be seeing jets if you're living under there now 
I know. Yeah, that airport changed so much. Somewhere, yeah. I think it was in the uh, somewhere in the early '90s. They just got a whole revamp. It's crazy. Yeah, they put a lot of money yeah. into the terminal, and then no one wanted to bring any service there. So it's just a really big FBO now. Is that right? Yeah. Wow, no it's kidding. massive. Yeah. I wonder if they're still holding out. You know, Chicago at some point is going to need that, right? that extra that outlier flight. airport. You think one? Yeah. Maybe get a Legion or Southwest or something. <laughs> I don't something, know. Right? Yeah. Right. Well, let's yeah. talk about your actual training. Well, I know that you are CFI now, and I don't know if you really get to talk about that very much. But did you have any difficulties on your training at all, or was it pretty smooth sailing? Um. Well, you know, after I got my private, I moved out to California. And to be honest, I met a different caliber, like not a caliber, that's the wrong way to put it. Um, I moved into an environment where people could make a career out of training. So all of a sudden, instead of meeting a lot of CFIs that were my age, like 24 and on their way to the airlines, all of a sudden I met guys that were like, 62 and had taught in the Navy. And then, oh, cool. you know, you know what I mean? Like you just people that, that actually made a career out of teaching. And, um, I think it's simple. I think it's just in an, in a place where you can fly 365 days a year. Yeah. You know, you probably, you probably find the same thing in Florida, same thing in Tucson, yeah. you know? And, um, and so I, I really hooked up with this one dude, <clears throat> Richard Anderson, who became kind of like my mentor. He's a former air force guy. And, um, I stopped short of calling it smooth sailing. I mean, he, he really kind of like reinvented everything I knew about flying. I mean, (laughs) it's more like he broke my bones and then reset them in the way that he wanted. (laughs) It's a great visual. (laughs) (laughs) Come here, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, he used to like hit me with a metal stick and jab me in the ribs and, you know, he was pretty hardcore. I'm guessing you do the same thing to your students. Now you just have that off camera, right? It's funny. I tell, you know, I fired Richard three times and I kept rehiring him because no one was as good as he was. But I remember the last time I fired him, I told him, dude, I'm going to be, I'm like, you're the best teacher I ever met, but I'm going to be better than you because I'm not going to be a dick. And like, you know, <laughs> it's true. That goes a long way. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, he, he was just a little bit too hardcore, but nobody else around me was offering the stuff that he was yeah. providing. I'd also say that it's different. He was probably stuck in the past where hardcore is pretty much the only way they taught you. It's either you learned their way or you didn't learn at all. So especially if he came from the military, that was probably just the only way he knew. Yeah, that and he was slightly sadistic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that helps too. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, man. So that's, and that's when I I still didn't know what I was doing. I was living on a boat out here because it was right around the time that Yahoo was kind of exploding. And I, uh, I love sailing too. So I just, you know, I, I was renting somebody's sailboat and in-flight training and living kind of large, I felt. And I just, at some point in that process, realized I love this. Like, I, I love the teaching part of it. And I don't know if I, I kind of like, I like being in one spot. You know, yeah. I don't know if I like the traveling oh, as much man. as other pilots. You yeah, know? I know exactly what you mean. My job, I work for NetJets, which is funny when you're talking about exec, executive jets. Like, that's what oh. I fly for now. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, I'm gone all the time. So, I mean, I totally understand that and I can sympathize with that. It's definitely an appealing part of your job is that you're home every night or most every night. There's probably a rare occasion where something happens to the plane or weather and you have to go stay in a hotel, but that is very few and far between. So that is yeah. definitely awesome. Exactly. Right. And I think you guys do like a seven on seven off kind yeah. of thing, right? Which yeah. is pretty, that's pretty hardcore. Yeah. Right there. It can be pretty intense. That's for sure. But I mean, Hey, I, I enjoy the flying. I enjoy it more than I would enjoy flying airlines. So, so it's not bad. It has trade-offs. You're, you're home for a lot of stuff too. 
Yeah, for sure. And yeah. you get to fly a lot of, uh, the thing I like about the flying you're doing is it's, it's varied. I feel like if I were to do something different, I'd want to, I wouldn't want to fly the same line no, over and over and never. over again. Yeah. That was the appeal to me is I could go to Anaconda, Montana. And then the very next day I could go to Barbados and then I could go to JFK. It's like, I could literally go everywhere, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is cool and fun. It is cool. Yeah. If I was, you know, at this point now I've got two kids. So <clears throat> the being home at night thing is, the most important. Real, yeah, it's got a real premium on it. <laughs> yeah. You know, but sometimes I think if I, I don't know, if I were younger, that traveling part wouldn't yeah. bug me so much, I guess. Well, I like how you said that you kind of realized when you moved to California that you wanted to be a, a flight instructor and you could see this as a career because I had the exact opposite. When I was going through my private, I was like, oh my gosh, I never want to be a flight instructor. <laughs> but my, I can my, understand that. Yeah, my reasoning was, is I didn't want to be that flight instructor that just uses students to build time because I had no passion to instruct. I didn't want to instruct doing stalls and spins and pattern work for eight hours a day to seem like the worst thing. So I did everything I possibly could to figure out a way to get out of instructing and I found an aerial survey job but I mean I don't knock flight instructors like if you do that to build your time there's nothing wrong with it I just really want to see more passionate people get into flight instructing and not just get in for the hours which I'm sure you've kind of seen as well as the kind of time has gone on and building hours is king right now yeah it's 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 tough you know like I find that um you know, there's definitely people out there. I don't want to throw everybody on the bus because there's <laughs> definitely people out there that, that can do both things effectively mm -hmm. that, you know, that are building hours, but at the same time are trying to be the best teachers they can be, you know, yeah. uh, while they're doing it. Um, but, you know, at the same time, if you're only doing something for a certain amount of time, you just don't have a chance to really steep yourself in it. And, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I you know, I just kind of focus on, on what I'm doing and try to constantly improve, yeah. you know, what I think of as my art. And, um, I think a lot of it is about people. Like when I look at, you know, people say to me all the time, how can you do that? You say the same things over and over again. It's like, you know, I do, but I say them to different people. And I think that's what, <laughs> you know, like everybody hears it differently. Uh, everybody, uh, well, it's a challenge. It's trying to figure out how every person learns because every person learns something differently and you got to constantly change the way that you teach, the way that you go about flights, the way you just kind of do being a CFI. You just have to constantly change your stuff. So that is by far a huge challenge. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I always, I, you know, I, I look for common experience. I ask people about their past. You know, there's certain things I find to be really powerful, like um, horseback riding, mm -hmm. for example. Like I, I grew up riding horses and if if somebody has that experience in their background, then we have a common language. I can talk yeah. to him about, you know, about some of the analogies. They're like, you know, I always say the plane's trying to eat grass, <laughs> you know, which it's is a reference to yeah. horses, you know, but um, also riflery or sports, yeah. like uh, people that have played athletic, you know, athletics and, and understand scrimmage versus drills versus right. like that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. My, um, um, I had a flight instructor. I, did most of my, I did my private pilot license at Ohio State University and I moved to Charlotte to do the rest of my training. And my instructor is a real old school guy from Texas. He, as old school as it gets, his name was Jim Eifert. And he would always, he, we didn't have much in common because he was a band guy, but he would always relate stuff to band over and over and over again. He just like, for some reason, he could tie flying and aerodynamics to how a band worked like no one else could. And I was just I constantly confused, but <laughs> it was so funny. But he was like a marching band. Uh, it was crazy. But he was, a, he was a really good instructor and I learned a lot from him. But it's just really interesting that you said that you can, it's all about finding something that you have in common with someone so you can kind of bond on that and then you can build from there. 
Yeah, totally. That's <laughs> funny though. I, you know, I'm a musician too, and there are so many great musical comparisons, but whenever I lecture, if I go down this path where I like to compare standardization, like SOPs to blues music, yeah. or other like improv music. <laughs> and I'll always say, is anybody in here a musician? And I swear, man, there could be a room of like a thousand pilots and there's like one dude in the back, probably your guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm a musician. And we're like the only two in the whole room. That's hilarious. That's, so yeah, that's to, funny. Like, that one doesn't help me so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really funny. So, um, talk a little bit. So you got your training done. You, um, let's see, we just talked about your private, you're going through your training and your, what was, let's say, what was your hardest check ride that you had to do personally? Oh, uh, the CFI check ride for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was with a guy that, um, had, you know, now at the time I was doing it, I don't know what it is now, but at the time it was a 60% fail rate as it was. Oh, nice. And, um, I got booked with an FAA guy who, <clears throat> um, had a reputation. Like, I don't think he'd passed anybody on their first shot. And yeah. I, uh, to this day, I've never failed a check ride. So I'm real proud. I was real proud of that record. I think I just saw and, that in your story. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. yeah. And so, but I, and I started to get nervous. I'm like, well, this guy's got a reputation for making it like a two part ride just to prove a point. And so I went in there and I literally told him in the first, like I, you know, like right when we sat down to do the documentation, I said, so look, I'm like, I've heard, that you, you know, you're a hard examiner. Like I've heard that you like to fail people. And I just want you to know that I am totally here to pass today. And like, if you find something that you think I deserve to fail for, then fail me. But I expect, I'm expecting of myself that I make it through this check ride today. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> He's like, all right, well, we'll see about that. Yeah, it's like, no, I fail everyone. So you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> it got, uh, yeah, it got kind of dicey. Yeah. What was uh, dicey about it? Well, there came a point where, uh, Jesus, I think this may be the first time I've ever said this on record, so I won't use any names, but, <laughs> um, I was training at a, I tried to, when I realized I was going to be a pro CFI, I started to go to every different flight school I could. Like, you know, I went to American flyers and ATP and, uh -huh. you know, every kind of school. So I can kind of see what was out there. I tried to use every local examiner I could. And at this one particular school, I'd been working with this guy and we knew that there was a certain piece of equipment that was, um, that was failed in the airplane. It was um, something minor. It was the alternate static air source in a Cessna 172 RG. Okay. And we'd been flying and we knew it was failed. So somewhere in the oral, the examiner and I got into an argument about 91213, which just for your listeners, if they don't remember, is the regulation that describes what you do when you have an operative equipment. Yeah. And, um, if you look at the very end, it says, you know, you have to, if something's not working and it's not required by anything, you can deactivate it and placard it inoperative. And then it goes on to say, if the deactivation requires maintenance, then the maintenance has to be performed in accordance with part 43. So I get into an argument with this examiner about that, <clears throat> where I'm saying, he asked me, do you have to get a mechanic, you know, to, to put on the an operative sticker. And I said, well, not if it doesn't require maintenance. And we kind of got into an argument about it. <laughs> and I had to pull out the book and say, look, man, it says if it requires maintenance, then you must. And he grudgingly let me go on that one, but he was a little miffed. <laughs> and so we get out to the airplane and we're pre-flighting and he sees that the alternate static air is not working. And uh, unfortunately I made a comment cause I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like, oh yeah, you know, we knew about that. And he just, he hit the, he hit the roof. He's like, wait a minute. What'd you say? You knew about that. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, that's been, that's been going on all week or whatever. And he's like, so you mean to tell me 
that your CFI so-and-so has been flying with you in this airplane with known equipment inoperative and it's not prepared. And he just started throwing the book at it. Oh my gosh. And I know. Right. And, um, he's like, well, when I get back, I'm going to talk to your CFI. That's not okay. We're going to come down. And he's like talking about how he's going to come down on the school and he's going to come down on my, my teacher. And this wasn't Richard at this point. Right. And so then at the end of the day, he makes a mechanic come out and put a sticker over the thing. He, He, we have to sit there and wait for the mechanic. The mechanic comes out. So I fly the whole check ride. I'm pretty sure I passed because at some point he grabbed the controls and said, I want to show you a landing. And usually when that happens, you're You're doing something right. Yeah. (laughs) So on the way home, I was thinking about this and I actually said to the guy, I said, uh, I'm like, listen, I'm like, I know I told you I wanted to pass today. But I just have to say, if you're going to throw the book at the school and you're going to throw the book at my CFI, who, by the way, has kids and a family and all this other stuff, I said, then I'm going to deny that I said what I said. And I'm going to deny that we've been fine with that inoperative. And I'm going to take their side so you can do what you want. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say after that? <laughs> I don't know. He must have respected it. He goes, yeah. well, we'll we got back there. And at the end of it, he signed my certificate. And I said, so does this mean I pass? And he goes, yeah, it means you pass. And I'm like, and you're going to leave, you know, Daniel alone. He goes, I'm going to leave him alone. And I was like, all right, good like, deal. Man. I'm never going to talk to you again. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, you know, later on, I'm thinking, why did I stick my neck out for those guys? But I just felt like I didn't want to be the guy that busted them. Right. Or got someone that had a family to lose their job. <laughs> right. Over something stupid. Over like a broken, so right. stupid. Like, of yeah. all the things you could bust, like, that is incredibly dumb. It's a 172. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? On yeah. a GFR day. But, yeah. Uh, Exactly. You're flying out. Yeah. Oh, well, whatever. No, yeah. Some DPEs are on a power trip, which actually brings up an interesting question with you being a CFI. How do you, or have you ever had to deal with a, a DPE like that? Have you had to deal with a necessarily a DPE with an agenda or someone that didn't agree with how you taught someone something? Um, yes. And, um, I think at the, I mean, look, I think a lot of my success with check rides has also been a a people kind of game, you know, mm-hmm. like learn knowing how to present yourself goes a long way. And I think, um, at the end of the day, you've got this person sitting there, they're trying to evaluate you. So I've really tried to coach my students in the same way. And often if I think there are gray areas, I will call the examiners ahead of time, ask them, how do you want to see the stalls? Or what do you think about 91, 185? Or I'll, I'll get some idea of who they are before I send my students there. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time, my students also like myself had a perfect first time pass rate. So it was many years into my teaching before I ever had a student fail a check ride. And there was one particular guy I'd never been with him. I never used him before this examiner. And, um, I unfortunately just kept trying to crack the code. Like I, my student came back and said, I failed. And I was like, what? And we sat down and we looked at it and it's like, why did that happen? And I talked to the examiner and I still, I was like, okay, let's try that. You know, try again, send another student to him. That guy fails a third student. That guy fails. And I, I came to realize that this examiner was, I think he was, you know, I don't, I think he was breaking the rides up. He basically wanted to charge people twice. Wow. And there was nothing I could do at the end of the day without starting a huge fight at the FISDO, but just avoid him. And I still, to this day, won't ever use him. That's so unfortunate because that just, that could totally take someone out of aviation. You fail someone once that could totally kill their demeanor and they're not going to want to fly anymore, whether they're embarrassed or whatever the reason. So that's just, 
crazy unfortunate, especially for what, like two hundred dollars or three hundred bucks. Oh man, this guy no more like in you know in the Bay Area here. I think he was charging like seven or eight hundred bucks a pop. Like he oh, was doing 50, he was doing like fifteen hundred dollar check rides at the end of the day. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe that's a little bit different, but still, still very yeah. unfortunate. Yeah, it was awful. Yeah. It was, so I guess yeah, the yeah. only way is once you because there's yeah other than causing a huge scene and a huge fight that might become bigger than something you want it to be. There's really no other way to deal with it other than just avoid them. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then I think um, the other examiners at this point now, I, I think I, I know all of them pretty well. And if there's an issue that comes up, um, we can just talk about it. Uh, you know, I'm, but usually the, I mean, something contentious, you know, like if, if a student fails over something that I'm not aware of or that the student wasn't aware of, um, it's usually pretty fair. I mean, the people that I send folks to now are not out to get anybody. Right. Yeah. No, it's probably actually for the students, you probably set such a high bar for your students because they're so the DPUs are so used to them doing this, this and this, that as soon as they don't do that one thing to correct, they're probably like, "Uh oh, (laughs) what's going on? (laughs) Yeah, I worry about that sometimes. So I try to like, you know, spread it around a little bit. So each DP, so they only get a couple of my guys, you know, each year. But um, yeah, I think, you know, I think that there are certain things that Richard, my mentor, sort of taught me that have me present really well. You know, and that's partially why I was successful on all those check rides. Mm-hmm. And um, I try to teach the same thing to my students. I mean, and little, sometimes they're little things too, like, like, I don't mean to sound too militant here, but, you know, if you, um, if you, at the end of a climb, you know, if you level off and you do a flow check and you go through everything and then you pick up a checklist and you call out the items one by one by one and then say, checklist complete, what's next, sir? That goes, I mean, dude, the guy's like, dang. Like, yeah, you're ready you're, to you're, go. You're ready to go, yeah. man. You are here to play. And it's like, you know, just little things like that. It doesn't take much just to kind of polish up your procedures and right. on that level. Well, even little things like that can help a student necessarily overcome a deficiency they had somewhere else where they can impress them with that and be like, oh, okay, yeah, he's not, he does know what he's doing. You know, it can be just a little bit more reassurance for that DP to be like, all right, he did mess up on the steep turns a little bit, but I'll deal with it there because he did this better and stuff like that. So I could see that. Yeah, exactly. You know, or or even just talking out loud, you know, telling, kind of going through what you're thinking and what you're saying. Yeah. You know, like when you're quiet in the left seat, the person in the right seat has no idea what you're thinking and they're not giving you the benefit of the doubt. And that's terrifying when you think that that guy has 45 hours and is trying to do his private pilot check, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. All right. So what are some, so say I'm your private pilot. We've been training for whatever, 50 hours, 60 hours, um, whatever the national average is. I'm getting ready to go take my check ride. What are kind of three tips or kind of, how do you settle down that? that student before they go take that check ride? I mean, when, when you say settle down, I think the first thing that comes to mind is I always tell students at that point that they're, they're essentially already pilots that all they have to do is go fly with one other human being so that they can demonstrate what they know. Right. According to me and according to all my colleagues who have performed phase checks and it's never, it's never just me. I rely on my colleagues a lot. So if you're a private or if you're, if you're going for any cert- certificate or rating with me, you've flown with at least two of my colleagues who have given us both, myself and you, critical feedback saying, you guys need to do this, this looked good, this looked good. So you essentially have a team of three people saying, you are a pilot and you are ready to go. So I really want people to know that no matter what happens on that check ride, no matter what 
that individual has to say, or, or you know, they're they're ready already. <laughs> right. You know, they're there. They just have to go show somebody and get a signature. Right. Exactly. You know. So <laughs> yeah, I think what? that's important to remember. Yeah, I would say which can be easier said than done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you don't know the guy. Yeah, I mean, it's and then I think that's also another value to phase checks is that you get and I and I generally want the phase check to be the hardest part, you know, but you'll get somebody sitting down in the, in the right seat that you don't know that's going to remain quiet. That's not going to give you all the little cues that I might give you. And that's just going to evaluate you. And I think if you've done that with two people before going into the check ride, then the examiner sits down and it's like, Oh, I've been here before. For sure. Yeah. Cause yeah. And you know, the, you know, the student's tendencies. So it's always good to have a second opinion to be like, Oh, well he usually does this. And he usually does that, you know, kind of, you can anticipate what's coming next where the other guy literally has no idea if he's going to put enough right rudder and to keep the power on stall from going into a full spin. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and then honestly it keeps my game sharp too, you know, cause I, I try to pick those phase check pilots uh, wisely. I'm not picking anybody easy. Right. And often they'll come back and say, Hey Jason, and you know your guy didn't do any like I remember one time somebody said you know your guy didn't do any after landing checklists <laughs> and it was a it was a good bit of feedback for me because I'm I'm militant about in flight checklists but once the airplane's on the ground I guess I was tending to be a little lax like I mean I check the things on the ground taxi the yeah, let's you go know, I, mean, I need right. to go see my daughter my son whatever I'm out <laughs> <laughs> right you know yeah. so there was a good reminder so now I'm like yeah you're right so making I make sure now every time that they stop and pull out the after landing checklist and go through it. And um, so I think it helps me keep my game really sharp to constantly check my students against other CFIs that I respect. Oh, for sure. And it's kind of a, a thing where if they, you don't want them to point out anything, right? So you want to be able, you want to teach their student everything and want everything to be perfect. Where as soon as someone else can point something out, it can be kind of a reality check. Like, dang, I need to step my game up. It's like, I don't want them to ever have anything to point out. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Which is funny. Yeah. And I think like, it's funny. I'm, I'm not a good examiner. Like there's so, so many times, even like people at the, at the FISDO have asked me, why don't you do it? You know, put in an application we'd love <laughs> to have you or whatever. And it's like, I'm so bad at sitting there quietly <laughs> evaluating people. I just want to teach and tell them what's up and, you know, well, I mean, it is a, it is still a learning experience. It's still a lesson in a way. So you can, I can still see you going out there and teaching, but you can just be like, look, you did screw this up too much, but <laughs> so you did fail, but I will teach you on how not to fail next time. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that's true. That's funny. So let's say um, we have a lot of people coming up now that are becoming CFIs. Kind of, we talked about the build hours to go to the regionals, to go to freight, to fly, whatever. What is something you would tell a new upcoming CFI of how they can kind of establish themselves as a good instructor to start out with? You know, that's a tough one. Um, because I know everybody doesn't have access to somebody like, uh, like, like Richard Anderson, like I did. I, but I would tell people not to, not to rush their own, training. Like I would try to get really good training wherever you could get it. Um, even if you went through an accelerated program, if you came through something like ATP, I would still go seek out some aerobatic instructors or some tailwheel instructors or um, push yourself a little bit. See if you can, I mean, at the end of the day, you can only teach what you know, maybe even find some senior instructors and buy some of their time. Say, Hey, will you take me out for three hours and just you know, pretend I'm a student show me how you would teach these things or how you would do these things. Because I feel like CFI school may or may not 
like anything, leave you in a position where you're really prepared to do the actual day-to-day job <laughs> in a way, you know, That's so and, true. Yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. So um, there are people that, that, that do it. And if you can find one that's passionate, I mean, if some young instructor came to me and said, Hey, will you do that with me? If you know, and I guess it would cost him my hourly, but I think it would be worth it. You know, no, for Especially sure. Today's world, I wouldn't mind if they filmed it, they could take it at home and study it, you know. <laughs> exactly. So much value out of that. Because you're right. Uh, CFI school, whether it should get your ATP rating to get your commercial, your private, your instrument, the whole job of that is so you can get that rating. So CFI school may not prepare you to how to handle a day-to-day basis or how to chase students down, but it gets you that rating. So it is on you to further your your knowledge. You're not done learning at that time. You have to continue to get mentors. You have to continue to go out and talk to people because you never know who might have that experience that could help you finally figure out how to teach someone something. Yeah, that's true. You know, and the and another thing that I would say is to not lowball your hourly. Like, I think that charging a premium is healthy in a way. Like it, 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 it would, it'll change the way you show up to do the job. Take it more serious. Maybe you think, yeah, for sure. You know, if you know that the person that's coming is paying you, you know, a hundred dollars an hour instead of, you know, whatever, $50 an hour or $35 an hour, you're going to look at that totally differently. You're going to like think, man, I, I better like deliver, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I have to be worth a hundred dollars an hour of their time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it'll, it'll cause, and then at the end of the day, it's a healthier ecosystem. If you'll find clients that are serious about getting that, that level of instruction, uh, you'll also find that you're able to pay your bills and make it work and, you know, and <laughs> pay your just, bills. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just kind of, you know, um, and then I guess the last thing is to not waste the debrief. So like one of the things I started doing is uh, using like a Google spreadsheet for my students. So when we sit down to debrief, I'll just open up my laptop We'll talk through the flight and essentially everything I'm saying to them, I'm typing into the spreadsheet. Like, here's what went well, here's what didn't. I noticed you did this. And so they have like a, we both have a written record of what went right, what went wrong, what the objectives were. And we are, we look at the next lesson. We say, so what do you think about next time? Here's the objective. Here's what we're going to do. We make a note of it right then and there. Okay. That's um, cool. And, I do all that like still on the clock too. I mean, it's maybe it takes an extra 20 minutes, but I think at the end of the day, having those notes and that agenda going into the next lesson makes the progress um, happen so much faster. No, I would completely agree. Cause I mean, it's just crazy with how technology has advanced. Even since I started training in 2010, the tools that you can use to, to further your retention of the goals that you're learning and everything. It's just, it's wild. I'm sure you could say the same thing from when you did your training that you wish that you had some of these, these tools that you could use like for flight or, or oh, anything yeah. or what is it? Aero weather to find all the, the METARs and stuff at the tip of your fingers is crazy. Yeah, it is. It's wild. It's uh yeah, it's, I mean, the, the tools we have today are just, I feel like some of my challenge is figuring out, you know, like there's a, there's a sadness on some level because I would say about 20% of what I know I, I've had to forget. Like it just, <laughs> you know, it doesn't apply anymore. Like I can teach you how to do an uh, NDB approach like nobody else, but you know, it's over. <laughs> like no one's ever going to do an NDB approach. So <laughs> I was just so going to say, I've never flown an NDB approach. Before, exactly. So. Right. So unless you yeah. live in Alaska, like yeah. that knowledge just is gone. Yep. Um, and on the other hand, it's like, I also have to look out for, <clears throat> it's funny. We're talking about this cause I, I'm working on a podcast, um, where I draw a comparison to the Titanic, actually the, oh, cool. the, sh- the ship that sank. And, uh, if you, this is for the, 
you know, accident report nerds out there, but yeah. like you can actually go online and read the the transcript of the interview done with the Titanic crew four days after the sinking. Oh wow! So like after the ship sank, they like scooped all those guys out of the water, brought them back to New York, and they had a congressional hearing. This is just four days after, and one of the uh, one of the lookouts like survived, and a lot of the crew survived. So you have this like transcript of like their interviews and what they said and what they saw. And I was reading it one day and I realized, you know, this is just a case of like, I don't know what I don't know. Like they didn't, they didn't know that you couldn't see icebergs in still water and they never had a technology that let them go 20 knots in a straight line. They always had the sailboats always had to tack. And if you're Mm -hmm. going 20 knots, the winds were howling and you could see the waves breaking on the base of the iceberg. Right. So they just didn't know what they didn't know. And I realized for us in flying, there's a lot of that going on right now. Like, like, is it smart to have students start with four flight or is it not, you know, right. Is it, very true. Right? And it's like, just, I'm trying to, a lot of my job is like looking around for the, what I'm calling the proverbial icebergs. Like what, what are we missing? Like, what you know i don't want to teach something just because it's old-fashioned and i think you need to know it but at the same time i don't want to reinvent the wheel because for 110 years or whatever it's been working pretty well just fine yeah Yeah. and when you rely on technology and automation it's kind of i think there's an american airlines video about a recurrent where they said as soon as something goes wrong just take technology a step down it's like bring it back down to the human level rely on your knowledge rely on your skill of flying an airplane and get the job done it's like if something's not working on a device, turn it off it's fine yeah that's the end of it and then there won't be any issues it's like don't focus on it just fly the plane it's like we all know how to fly planes well most people do i mean i'm sure there's some pilots out there that struggle but (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's just if you're ever in a situation for ipads freak out all the time it's too hot you can't see what are you gonna do now it's like all right well go back to the basics you know circle figure out where you are call someone talk to someone communicate do all that kind of fun stuff (laughs) figure out how to get home yeah. exactly right yeah four flight makes people i love four flight but it can make people way too reliant on it and i think i was definitely one of them because well when i first did my private the for the four flight just came out right after i did my stage check so i didn't necessarily have four flight until i was closer to getting my check ride where i so i didn't re- reuse it too much but once i started using it in my ifr training i was like this is the best right. <laughs> i don't have to print out any plates this is amazing <laughs> it yeah. was a game changer it was awesome totally you know and um and so, you know, it's challenging for me sometimes to figure out, like, because I have the same experience with ForeFlight now, but I learned, you know, with paper and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's a delicate balance. Yeah. And, and kind of anyway, since we're talking about it, where I ended up is um, I forced my private candidates to use paper until the cross-country phase. And then after the first or second cross-country, we start to phase in ForeFlight. That's and good. And then I expect my instrument pilots to use it. I think in today's world, if you're flying around on instruments and you're not using ForeFlight, you're sort of leaving a valuable tool behind. No, I would completely agree. ForeFlight is, is so valuable. <laughs> yeah. IFR. <laughs> yeah, right? I yeah. Mean, yep, 100% so, agree. Yeah. That's cool. No, I mean, yeah, technology is crazy how it has just changed everything. Um, going more to the finer points, why, when did you start that and why did you start all that? Um, I think that, you know, well, I started it in 2005. If you can imagine that okay. somebody in 2005 podcasts were brand new and somebody said to me, literally a student, cause I live in the Bay area and I'm flying all the time. I didn't really know technology. And they said, have you ever heard of podcasts? And I was kind of like, what's a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'll send you one. So he sent me uh, NPR Stardate. Do you know that one? I think no. they still do it. 
Anyway, it's like every week they come in, like you'll be listening to the radio and they'll be like, start date for this week. Did you know that a quark is? And they're like, for like the next two minutes, they'll teach you something about astronomy. And you're like, huh, like I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and then they're, and then they're gone, you know? And so I thought, well, this is cool. I could like, I could potentially reach thousands of people just with these little flying tips. And so, you know, back, if you listen to the way back into the finer points, it's kind of that it's like, you know, here's what I think about checklists. And for the next five minutes, I told you this little thing about checklists or whatever. And, um, it just kind of grew from there. I mean, it was the ability to like, one of the things that's always frustrated me about teaching and now we've got a YouTube channel so I can put GoPros in the cockpit and, get all these little learning moments out. But the thing that always frustrated me is I'm up there with one person and there'll be these like light bulb moments for this person, or I will have an (laughs) epiphany or like some magic thing will happen and nobody in the world will know about it except me. And this one person, you know, it's like, dang it. I can, and you try to recreate that same thing and you forget the next time you go up, it's like, no, (laughs) right. Well, it's it's because at the end of the day, it turns out there's like 25 of them on every flight. It's like, there's so much gold. And so, uh, yeah, so it's just a, a way to like hit more people, you know, yeah. get more people out there. And, um, that's when the relationship with four flight started. That's when I met Howard Donner. So it's like, once I started putting myself out there, people started contacting me, Exactly. you know, which was cool too. Like that was before four flight, but you know, Tyson and Jason, the founders of four flight found the podcast and thought it was cool. And, awesome. Yeah. So how do you, let's see, how do you handle safety? And the videos. So I know, like, I think Steve O is getting in trouble with FAA. They're trying to get him for checklist use or for something like that. But are, are you fearful at all of the FAA having these videos to look at all the time? Because they could probably find something on every video that everyone makes of getting someone in trouble. Do you, does that ever come up in your mind at all or not too worried about that? Um, very rarely. Uh, it does come up occasionally in my mind. Um, but, uh, you know, I feel like. The FAA is going to have pit bulls like in the crowd, right? There's going to be a few people that really just want to attack. But I think for the vast majority of them, at least the ones that I know locally, just really appreciate kind of what I'm doing. I think they understand that I'm doing it in the interest of safety. And, um, um, you know, it's a funny thing because it's not just the FAA. You have to be really careful. I mean, sometimes I'll see videos online and I'll think, oh, my Lord, like, what what are these people doing like this is such a dangerous situation and there's no mention of it and they're talking about it like it's no big deal and, yeah you know people are going to think it's okay to fly in this tiny little airplane in icing conditions over the mountains at night like you know no. like <laughs> right hey, don't do it and, and you uh, found it <laughs> <laughs> right you know but um so i think we have a responsibility you know because we are impacting so many people so but at the end of the day i don't I put the cameras up and I kind of forget that they're there. So all this happens in the editing suite. And uh, I think the way that I helped myself stay honest there is the same way I do it with in the real world is that I send it to people before I publish it. I'll send it to, you know, flight chops or somebody and another CFI and say, Hey, what do you think of this? Do you see anything in here? Like before I throw it up on the internet, I'm not the only guy who has seen it. That's hard to do because I mean, you put so much time and effort in either whether recording or editing, you're like, all right, this is perfect. I can't wait to get it out. Hit the publish button. But it's like, you totally forgot that you filmed yourself doing something really stupid or like you taught something wrong. And then someone like flight chops or someone else that has some experience can be like, yo, uh, why'd you do this? Yeah, <laughs> Let's talk right. about this. It's like, Oh, you're right. I should yeah. not do that. <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's definitely a good idea. 
Yeah. And I, and I, and I, you know, um, I invite people to do that too. I've had other young YouTube publishers like send me stuff and say, what do you think about this? And I'll think it's great, but I wouldn't publish that part at two minutes and 44. (laughs) (laughs) When he broke this certain reg. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, they can take it or leave it. Yeah. That's really funny. No, I mean, that's definitely the kind of the age that we're getting into in the day of time or the time of day or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But we're getting into the fact where people are recording everything everyone it's on there forever even if you delete it someone might have recorded or downloaded it so everything as soon as you put on the internet it is there for good and doesn't matter what that is pictures instagram that can get a lot of people in trouble i think it was 10 years ago they started fa started really focusing on that and they always threaten that so who knows what's going to happen with that there but i know major companies don't want their their pilots posting pictures from the cockpit so yeah it's interesting i mean uh yeah and steve-o did get in trouble i think it was it was specifically related to his 135 flying. How did they, uh, did he like say he did 135 flying or was it, how did I they even the know? Time, yeah. At the time he was like in uniform and I think he mentioned the passengers in the back or whatever, or I, uh, I don't know, something like that. And, uh, and they came down on him and they gave him, you know, they had him do a, what is it? A 337 ride or whatever <laughs> to get rechecked. And, they, and that was it like a slap on the wrist. Right. And he's more careful now. I think he only does it on part 91 flights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to think about it. Is it worth me losing my job? It's like, I mean, this podcast is great, but it doesn't necessarily make enough money or provide enough value that it's worth my job that I have, you know? And I'm sure you're the same way. It's like, you can't lose your certificate. That is your, that's how you provide for your family. So if it had to come down to it, you would cut all costs and cut all the production just to keep your certificate. So gotta be smart about it. Yeah. And I just, you know, and I I hope the FAA is smart about it too, because I think like back to the beginning of our conversation, me having to like mail order books from, from universities and stuff in today's world, you know, I I honestly believe that I grew up in quotes during the drought. I mean, I think the nineties to now was a real drought in flying. And I think we're in the, at the beginning of an explosion. I mean, I think that this is going to be a golden age for aviation. I would agree. And I I definitely think these new age media have helped this. So say like YouTube and Steve-O and flight chops and you or who else is, whoever else is doing it. They've really helped spark the, the, the light for the the younger aviation crew. And it's definitely needed because there's a shortage. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. Come on, come on down. That's <laughs> right. Cool. Well, yeah. I got a quick rapid fire section for you. If you don't mind, I'm just going to ask you an aviation related question. They just come off the top of my head and it might be five, might be 10, might be three, who knows, but you just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. What is your favorite plane between a Cessna Piper or diamond for training? Cessna. Okay. What is your favorite Cessna for training? Um, the 172 for private pilot training. What Cessna. about for what about for the rest of training? I think the 182 is a reasonably good instrument platform and that's what we use on our mountain trips and stuff. But I think, um, first thought was 172. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't go wrong with 172. You can beat the crap out of them. They still want to come to work the next day. (laughs) Yeah. And and they're a good balance of not being too well designed. Like they still have some flaws, like, you know, sometimes with the pipers, I feel like, you know, for crosswinds, for example, like you just get away with murder. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and it's not because it's a bad plane. It's probably because it's in some ways a better plane. Yeah. You 
No, it's very interesting point to say. That is definitely true. It's like uh, my dad flies Airbus and a couple of my friends fly Airbus and they say Airbus makes a, a great pilot, an average pilot, and a really bad pilot, a really average pilot. So it kind of <laughs> evens it out and maybe Piper does the same thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. What's your favorite type of flying? Would you rather fly over the beach? Would you rather fly instrument approaches or would you rather fly over the mountains? Um, I enjoy mountain flying. Yeah. What's your favorite plane you've ever flown? Um... A Mooney. Ooh, I would love to. My dream plane to buy is a Mooney, but everyone tells me that I'm way too tall for one. I'm about 6'3". Oh, yeah, unfortunately you are. They're a little bit like a backpack. Son of a gun. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? And it's funny, I'm going to qualify this a little bit too, because it's not the fastest Moonies. I've flown everything from you know the Ovations, the Acclaims, everything, but it's the late 80s, the Mooney 201, that, that they just got into a sweet spot right there, yeah. like in 87 and 88, where that plane is just perfect i've heard that they don't want to stop flying they're almost impossible to land because they just want to keep going yeah they are i mean we could we could talk for a long time about that we just had a fatal crash at palo alto for that exact reason oh, really? there's, there's a lot of like runway overruns people oh. just they try to stick them try to get them to quit and they put them down late and they bounce and they go off the end of the runway yikes yeah well there you go i guess we'll talk about it one day <laughs> that's yeah. uh yeah, yeah i mean but, you know, it, it, for anybody listening, a simple SOP where if your wheels aren't down by the halfway point, initiate a go around will yeah. keep you out of trouble. Without a doubt, go back and do it again. Don't worry about if your friend has made it in or if someone else or if you need to get in, you can always take another chance. It's yeah, a beauty sure. of aviation. Yep. All right. What is your favorite airline? Um, Virgin America. Oh, no more. <laughs> you poor soul. There you go. I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina, so Americans pretty much all I ever saw. Oh yeah. What is your least favorite airline? Um, United. Oh, good call. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> yeah. I know it's such a big one, but I've just had horrible experiences on United. They had a tough year last year, so I mean. <laughs> Maybe not financially, but the whole beating someone up and putting a dog in an overhead bin probably doesn't bode well for uh future. Yeah. And it's that whole tiered system of like, you know, like if you spend a lot of money with them, they treat you well, but if you don't, they treat you horribly, you know, yeah. like it, it was such a relief going to something like Virgin where they're just kind of cool to everybody. Yeah, you, know, you just buy would, a ticket and you, you sit on the plane and you get the same you know, service. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I remember That's one a, time I missed, a, I had a student buy me a ticket for United and he was real wealthy and I didn't notice, but the ticket said like one K like he was a one K member. Yeah. And I didn't notice, but I get there and I'm like a little bit late and, and I'm talking to the lady and she's just being so mean. Like, and, and I ended up missing the flight cause I was arguing with her and I missed the plane and I like never got on. And about 15 minutes, you know, like, well, maybe 25 minutes into our argument or whatever, she looks at my ticket and she goes, Oh, she goes, you're a one K member. And I said, I'm a what? She goes, you're a one K member. And I go, okay. She says, you should have told me that I could have gotten you on. It's like, why don't you just get me on anyways? That's what I was thinking. I was like, really? Come or, on, man. Or why don't you look at the fact that I was a 1K member before I missed my flight? <laughs> right. Or like, how awful is that? Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, that's a bad experience. Yeah. All right, let's see. What is another one? Uh, iOS or Android? iOS. Okay. Um, if you could fly in any other state other than California, what state would it be in to do kind of to be a career flight instructor? man it's tough i, I got I know, two right? in my head arizona and florida are the only two i can think of like yeah, like, yeah. i would highly recommend if anyone wants to do it to go to north carolina that's not a bad option too 
Okay, sweet. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful there. Yeah, that's where I did my instrument commercial, multi-commercial. And wintertime, you can fly hard IFR up to about 5,000 feet before you got to worry about freezing levels. So it was great. Got a lot of good IFR time. I love it. That's yeah. great. Yeah, man, for sure. Uh, let's see. This is going to be the last question for you, and then we can head out and debrief a little bit. But so say you have someone coming up to you, and they are going to be a new flight instructor, and they want to be just like you. What is three tips that you would give them for their career? Um, I would say invest in themselves. Spend money on their own training. So don't just get out of CFI school and go try to get a job. Like, you know, like I said before, get some aerobatic training, get some tailwheel instruction. Like you can go fly with guys like Sean Tucker at his aerobatic school. You can go up to Alaska and, you know, get a float plane rating. I mean, just put some money into yourself because what you know is what you teach. Um, I would also say charge enough to make it worth your while and deliver a great product. Yeah. That's the most important part. (laughs) Yeah. I think it was actually Tyson from four flight. who said to me once that, you know, I think it was at a time when I was making videos and trying to charge a dollar 99 for him. And he called me and he's like, dude, your videos are awesome, but this whole project is going to fail. And he's like, do you want to know why? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I would. He's like, because you can't be the best and the cheapest. You can either be the best or the cheapest. He said, so if you want to be the best, you got to charge top dollar because that's the only way being the best is sustainable. He's like, and your stuff's the best. So because you're charging, you know, nothing, it's not going to work. That is so true. Yeah. That's crazy. That's mind blowing. (laughs) Yeah. It kind of blew my mind. And, And I think that for CFIs, they just remember that, you know, like, there will be CFIs out there that say, oh, I'll charge you $35 on the Hobbs, but that's not who you really want to be. Right. So you got to understand you're going to get $35 worth <laughs> of instruction, yeah, exactly. not a hundred dollars right. worth. Yeah. yeah. Know your wealth and know your worth. It's exactly yeah. true. Yeah. Well, sure. Jason, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I had a lot of fun talking with you. Um, hopefully in the future, maybe we can have you on again and uh, talk a little more about aviation and just a bunch of other things. Uh, I appreciate everything you've done for the community. Kind of the OG podcaster started the whole thing. So, <laughs> hey man, if it wasn't for you, who knows if anyone else would be doing it. So we appreciate you. Well, I really appreciate that, Justin. It's been fun to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Hope to see you soon. Aviation, thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode. As I said earlier, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pilot to pilot. And if you like this episode, let me know via iTunes. You can search us using pilot to pilot or on Spotify, Google Play, all of the major podcast players. You can also let me know on Instagram. Follow me at pilot to pilot. You can email me at pilot to pilot HQ at gmail.com. Stay tuned next week for our next episode. Happy flying, Aviation.